and I, um... We need to talk about your flair. Really? I, I have 15 pieces on. I, uh, well, well, okay, 15 is the minimum, okay? Okay. Now, you know, it's up to you whether or not you want to just do the bare minimum, or, uh... Well, like Brian, for example, has 37 pieces of flair on today, okay? Mm. A terrific smile. Okay, so you, you want me to wear more? Look, Joanna, yeah. people can get a cheeseburger anywhere, okay? They come to tchotchkes for the atmosphere and the attitude. Okay, that's what the flair's about. It's about fun. Yeah. Okay, so more than, yeah? <laughs> Look, we want you to express yourself, okay? Now, if you feel that the bare minimum is enough, then okay. But some people choose to wear more, and we encourage that, okay? You do want to express yourself, don't you? All right. That was the 1999 movie Office Space. Mike Judge. And we are Lost Futures, a Mark Fisher podcast. And I'm Steve. I'm Marlo. Today, we're doing Chapter 6, All That Is Solid Melts Into PR, Market Stalinism and Bureaucratic Anti-Production. It's a long episode, so... Well, it's a long chapter. Maybe we'll blow through this. <laughs> Maybe we won't do like 15 or 20 minutes for a normal uh, episode. Is. Uh, yeah, so he starts by calling Office Space underappreciated, which I think is the biggest cultural difference between him and I because I was in high school in like the early 2000s when that movie, The Big Lebowski, and like a couple other movies, uh, Super Troopers were on constant rotation on Comedy Central and like everyone liked those fucking movies. Yeah, it was the the movie to watch to get... Like it was, it was a DVD, everyone had their freshman year of college that like, it'd be like, oh yeah, let's put on Office Space. Great movie. And then there'd be like three people who were like, oh, I've never seen Office Space in there. All excited. Oh, yeah. I guess we're gonna watch Office Space. Mine freshman year was Requiem for a Dream. Well, which... yeah, that too. There were a bunch of movies like that. Like Memento was also like that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Office but, Space. Yeah, Office Space was one of those. It had a kind of a cult following. Well, it had that special following of early two thousands Comedy Central rotation that like also Big Lebowski and Super Troopers had. That kind of just helped it get popular a little bit after the movie really came out. Anyway, Mark Fisher thinks it's unjustly under-celebrated. He compares it to Blue Collar, which me and Steve did a double feature last night. We did watch the relevant movie for this one, Office Space, and then the mentioned once movie for this, (laughs) Blue Collar, the latter of which neither of us have ever seen. Lovely, reactionary, anti-union trash from the 70s. Great film. (laughs) (laughs) It was one of those where I hated the politics of it, but I loved the movie. Yeah, it was a great movie. Um, I just want to be the the guy working in the auto. I I mean, like... With the the blues going and... uh, Yeah, that 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 was my 
joke was, um, like, the movie takes place among auto workers in Detroit, and every time they have a shot in the factory, not just the opening shot, but whenever they go back to the factory, it's the same, like, <laughs> bum, 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 bum. And so, like, yeah, I had the idea that, like, that wasn't the soundtrack. That was actually, like, an in situ, uh, fucking thing that they just all were listening to constantly. It's with Richard Pryor and Harvey Keitel, and they do similar beats to Office Space, which is basically you steal from the organization that you're part of. In Blue Collar's case, it was they stole from the union. Yeah, the corrupt mobbed-up union they were part of, they, like from it and then got into like it wasn't really a comedy they could have had it be hijinks but i wouldn't call them hijinks i would call it high stakes uh, crime drama yeah really yeah uh i didn't the movie kind of bugged out in the last eight minutes so i didn't see how it ended i assume harvey Keitel saw the light and like swore fealty to his union boss and apologized for causing trouble um <laughs> And in which case, I'll say it's a good movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> Richard Pryor uh, was great. Yeah, Richard Pryor had an excellent dramatic performance. Uh, yeah, no, this movie from the 70s that by no means needs us to tell you about. Uh, it's pretty good. Um, but I can see what he's talking about yeah, here. Yeah. In, in both cases, it's work is alienating... I have a chance to get revenge on the people who are causing me harm. And here he says, and it, it is kind of like a, a Fordism versus post-Fordism kind of mm-hmm. comparison that he similarly compared Godfather and Goodfellas to Heat, and right. now he's comparing Blue Collar to office space in a similar like these were the labor relations then now the labor relations are as they are and we're gonna look at those differences yeah and i think blue collar is very interesting for sort of dispelling the mythology of the like pristine fordism in many ways where it's like yeah actually the unions you know i mean i joke it's reactionary but no i mean like the reason you have the UAW president you have today is because there was a push by actual pro-labor forces in highly corrupt unions that were not in it for the workers at a certain time. Yeah, so like... And I think it was definitely playing on that historically, right? Yeah, like the, the union was lending money to the mafia out of the pension fund, which is like a real thing, unions did like that was what a mobbed up union was but just the general idea because it's interesting because in office space and the thing that i always found reactionary about office space is it very much naively valorized and like worship the like manual laborer and like the you know the the main character's arc in the movie peter peter he ends up like taking a job in construction after working in a cubicle. And he's like, yep, this is so much more rewarding. And it's like, okay. I mean, like, if that's your thing, like, I'm not denouncing it. But, like, you know, also manual labor sucks. Um, But at the end of it, it seemed like he saw the light. Right. It was just this, like, uh, well, like, yeah, no, because his fucking neighbor, like, 
just like is the you know happy fucking stupid ubermensch who like just likes to fish and Diedrich Bader's character Lawrence yeah and like watch porn on cable with the with the <laughs> worst fucking mustache yeah. he had the worst like you know kind of truck stop mustache which looked like it was about to fall off every second he turned around but yeah, like, but that's always the like thing I find ironic about Office Space, and particularly now being you know someone who uh, I know how hard it is to find stable employment, and like you look at Office Space, and it's like, yeah, I wish I could just like have a place I go to every day and not have to fucking worry about shit. Like for a lot of people, that is kind of an ideal now, and in Office Space, it's like. Yeah, I wish I could just work in construction and not have to worry about shit. And then in Blue Collar, they're, like, fucking doing manual labor, and that also fucking sucks. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I did like that we had that double feature. I thought it was... Yeah, it is kind of a grass is always greener. Right. But the end result is that capitalism kind of... Yeah, work, work just kind of does suck. And you should not read Mark Fisher as lionizing Fordism. But anyway, so he starts out talking about the clip we played at the top, the pieces of flair, and this idea that in post-Fordism, which he brings back also the idea of control society, control and policing comes gets outsourced to the individual, and that's called anti-authoritarian, but in fact, it's this dispersed authoritarianism that's equally bad. And as we're going to explore, it promises a level of rationalism that it also fails to deliver on. So with this particular thing, Jennifer Aniston's boss, Mike Judge, um, <laughs> these are the actors who play these people. Uh, Stan. Stan is saying... Not you are required to wear 34 pieces of flair, but it's that's not even enough. You need to want to wear 34 pieces. And likewise, you know, I, I think it's an impression all my friends did in high school, but the Bill Lundberg, the boss. Yeah, uh, you might want to come in on Saturday. Hey, if you could just do if that, you could just... that would be great. Like, he will never directly ask you to do something. He will always speak in these series of conditionals, um, which Mark Fisher doesn't even mention this in the chapter. I think it's relevant, but like he speaks in this very particular way of constant conditionals. Like that. Right. He never says, you need to come in tomorrow. He, he will start with, I'm going to need you to come in tomorrow if you could do that, that would be great, blah, blah, blah. It's very passive. Right, a super passive voice. And, like, from that, likewise, you have this, like, pretending that it's not an authority while it's an authority. And the same goes from Mike Judge's uh, character of with the flair. Right. It's a passive authority. Right, right, exactly. I mean, again, like I said, it's like we would like you to want to express yourself. He could simply just say wear 34 pieces of flair and she'll she'd do it because he's the boss. And that is the relationship we agree to, but you know, that's no longer enough. And moreover, 
you get this increased bureaucracy in the TPS reports, blah, blah, blah. Right. And Mark Fisher relates this heavily to the education. And him being a teacher, he relates it directly to the way in which education works, educational institutions. Uh, in many educational institutions, for instance, if after a classroom observation, a teacher is graded as, quote, satisfactory, they will be required to undertake training prior to a, a reassessment. He goes on and he develops this, but his main thrust is that, yeah, you say that you took away all of this bureaucracy by developing these levels of capitalism, but what ends up happening is that the worker ends up having to police himself rather than having an authority police him. Right. Yeah, he mentions Richard Sennett has argued that the flattening of pyramidal hierarchies has actually led to more surveillance. Richard Sennett examines this in The Corrosion of Character, The Personal Consequences of Work in Newcastle. Right, that's, uh, yeah, that was that book we mentioned. It was a follow-up to his book about the janitor and about the janitor. So essentially, yeah, you have this... I, I like to point out before you go on with this, is he is developing it in a similar way to the Heat chapter. Like, he gives you the example of post-Fortis, and now he's giving you the Senate of, like, this is how individuals working under these conditions are now more atomized, right. uh, more alienated, more under surveillance, rather than what is their expressed goal of uh, taking away surveillance. Right. Now there's more surveillance. Right, so he's relating it essentially to education once more and the bureaucracy that goes into that. Um, the other element of this is it actually goes back, what, two, three chapters now mm -hmm. when he's discussing these two locuses to repoliticize. So first he said mental illness or mental health second was bureaucracy so now we're on bureaucracy so we're we're generally following a fairly long outline through all this um and he's relating it to education he's also using DeAngelis and rv who rv avi who wrote a whole essay on well relating it to bureaucracy in how teachers are managed at the higher learning level. Yeah, they have a, a, a paper that he cites uh, two times in this chapter called Cognitive Capitalism and the Rat Race, How Capital Measures Ideas and Effects in UK Higher Education from April 2006. It, it's more like a sociological it, kind it's, of... It's very funny that it's just like... All these universities in England had a bunch of philosophers and sociologists just writing bitch pieces to journals about <laughs> their boss. <laughs> like, yeah, no, it sucks how academics are managed. Well, it it was kind of taking, I guess, a post-Marxist uh, Sample bent. size me. <laughs> well, it's more taking a, a post-Marxist... Uh, yeah, like I mean, I think it's a pretty explicitly heart, Marxist... Heart and, 
Hart and Negri are both in the post-Marxist yeah, yeah, yeah. school, and a look at uh, Taylorism and the way in which this has been eroded, I think, in UK. They definitely look at the structures of Taylorism. Mm-hmm. He talks about the, the modules. Yeah, so, I mean, what DeAngelis and RV are writing about is, like, if you're a professor at some college, you are like a module leader and you must complete paperwork, in particular a module specification, which lists the modules, aims, and objectives. So module's just the class. Aims and objectives, ILOs, modes, and methods of assessment, amongst other information in the module review document, at which point the Marxist-Leninist, the module leader, (laughs) reports their own assessment of the module's strengths and weaknesses, a summary of that. Yeah, it's very dry. It's dry. Yeah, it's, it's dry, and it's based on, like, you need to then rate yourself, and you're expected not to give yourself a 10 out of 10, then you have to go to the student assessments, and it's this whole fucking thing. And Fisher relates it to, in his own experience, it used to be, like, every couple of years or so, some people from, like, the central, like, education office would come down, observe classes, and it'd be a pretty heavy review period that you'd have to be ready for, and, like, whatever, and you got through it. And then they changed the rules so they no longer did that, but instead... The schools need to show that they have sufficient internal review processes, in which case they'll only have a light review from Central. And those internal review processes, of course, add all this extra work onto the teacher. And it's this whole thing from there. Which I think you'll get into next chapter as well. And I've experienced this. I have to do these self-assessments at my mm-hmm. job as an office worker currently who's working from home. But like I have to do a self-assessment and my coworker has to do assessment of me. And then my boss has to do an assessment of me also based on the assessment my coworker does. And this adds a lot of paperwork to right. my boss, which also adds paperwork to my HR department. And right. It's, and it's alienated from the work that you're actually supposed to be doing, like teaching students or what have you. And moreover... Well, in this case, I'd be the student and <laughs> he, he would be well, the... Well, I mean, you're a technical writer, so it's taking away from time you could be technical writer. Right. But because everything's measured in the assessments, then it just sort of becomes a thing of producing results for assessments, removed from whatever the original goal is. And people fucking hate this. The bosses hate it. Right. The workers hate it. The middle management, HR, they all kind of despise this labyrinthian process. And I think that's really what Mark Fisher kind of gets across here is that everybody involved doesn't like to do it however there is this we do it because we're told we have to do it not because we enjoy doing it right so this diffusion of power that's inherent to neoliberalism and has this quote-unquote market ontology market logic to it of decentralization for decentralization's sake instead creates a large layered of bunch of bureaucracy that such neoliberalism associates with Stalinism. And that's our cue.
market Stalinism. What does it mean? We've discussed it before, but what are we talking about when we talk about market Stalinism? I would define it as a methodology for worker management inherent to late capitalism. Yeah. Um, but what does that mean? If you were to point at something and say, that's market Stalinism. So, I mean, as, as we were saying, it is this notion that in spite of the fact that capitalism claims that decentralization and adopting a competitive market logic to solving various functions, problems, etc., be that management of teachers in a school, distribution of healthcare, etc., that the promise of that is faster action, less being bogged down with uh, bureaucracy and essentially stickiness, a ability to react faster and use less resources to get better results. And yet when that is done, inherent to that process is actually an increase of all of those problems and an increase of worker uh, surveillance and a decrease of worker freedom that is the very thing it's claiming to solve yeah uh, I think but that's that that's a definition but i i want an example like what's an example uh, of market style i don't know the teacher thing we were talking about <laughs> the stuff in the, the stuff in the chapter <laughs> yeah the the idea that Okay, so it used to be like every couple of years, Ministry of Education would send someone over to observe your school and make sure you were up to standards. And now they've stopped doing that, but you have to fill out a bunch of paperwork to prove that uh, you're up to standards. now. And moreover, there's a certain loss because presumably, despite the Ministry of Education person being a stuffy bureaucrat, they're also a person who probably knows what a good teacher looks like and, you know, got there through some experience in the field of education and can look at a classroom and say, all right, they're a perfectly good teacher. Uh, whereas with filling out assessments, you are only measuring the ability to fill out an assessment only could measure the ability. So it's kind of a... Uh... It's a teaching to the test thing, um, to use a turn of phrase that I think is pretty familiar to most people. Teaching uh, to the test, as in, like, teaching for a standardized test. Uh, he except, uses... you know, diffuse throughout worker management as a whole. He uses this uh, example in here, or uh, a rhetorical question, are students the consumers? of the service or its product. That that sort kind of, of is instructive of... The edge cases of where this logic of rationality breaks down, where it's like, all right, you're using a market logic, but exactly what is the market? Yeah, a child that is going through elementary or middle or high school, are they a commodity? Are they commodified? Right. Uh, like, is or there are whole... they consuming the education product? Or is the education student like the output of the school factory? And is the general logic to bring them into the workforce, which I think is 
the ultimate kind of like market logic, right? That well, that no, not necessarily, because if I am a school that's doing advertising, I'm not advertising to companies like, oh yeah, we produce the best students. I'm advertising to students to come to my school. So you're saying it's taking it away, the student's future in the workplace and replacing it. Uh, I'm saying that with, like on with, the one hand, you're identifying like kind of a Foucauldian idea of the school as the factory that produces workers, essentially. Right, right. But on the other hand, you can also equally look at schools as treating their students as customers and having to advertise That's to the students and they're providing a service to the students. And he's pointing out that there's no clear answer to that and that's sort of why this market logic breaks down because you can't even really define the student because it's an absurd question. Neither a school is not a commodity form. Like It doesn't help work to be a school and to face this commodity form. So you're just uh, presenting results that don't necessarily, that don't exactly match the work that was put in you're or, the, or the values by which the students perform at. And I think that gets into the next part about the Soviet Union and Stalinism that he gets to right. about the, the uh, Stalin's White Sea Canal Project, which, you know, this book, for all intents and purposes, gets a lot of flack from Marxist-Leninists, and I think one of the reasons for it this... Gets some flack from some Marxist-Leninists. Right, who read the signs and signifiers of they're using Stalin as a, a, a baddie here, so we're going to assume this is an anti-communist kind yeah, of yeah. propaganda. A anyway, I mean, the general idea of the canal is essentially it was a big boondoggle of a fucking project that essentially turned into a bunch of departments writing each other letters about how successful their part of the project is but you know that was all that was happening and Zizek refers to the Soviet Union as the quote-unquote empire of signs and that very thing is also happening with late capitalism. So he gives the example of the White Sea Canal. This is from Marshall Berman's. Marshall Berman is a Marxist humanist. Trot. And he wrote about the White Sea Canal in his book, uh, All this, That is Solid Melts into Air. Stalin seems to have been so intent on creating a highly visible symbol of development that he pushed and squeezed the project in ways that only retarded the development of the project. Thus, the workers and the engineers were never allowed the time, money, or equipment necessary to build a canal that would be deep enough and safe enough to carry 20th century cargoes. Consequentially, the canal has never played any significant role in Soviet commerce or industry. All the canal could support, apparently, were tourist steamers, which in the 1930s were abundantly stocked with Soviet and foreign writers who obligingly proclaim the glories of the work. The canal was a triumph of publicity, but if half the care that went into the public relations campaign had been devoted to the work itself, there would have been far fewer victims and far more real developments 
and the project would have been a genuine tragedy rather than a brutal farce in which real people were killed by pseudo-events. So he is saying this example of Stalin demanding that this canal be built and the death of X amount of people, which has been tabulated by a number of anti-communists, uh, I mean, with, with this particular canal project, I think that they probably have a reason. Single people died during the dig. Well, it's disputed how many people died, but needless to say, there were a lot of people that died as a result of this project that the bureaucratic state and Stalin himself seemed to want to have happen. And Mark Fisher is relating this to teachers being made to take tests. Yeah, that, well, or fill out assessments. Fill out uh, assessments. Uh, right, and, and just the disconnect between the need to show the work versus the fact that the canal is unable to transport, you know, modern cargo ship. supposed to do, or the teachers can't teach students. And he relates this to areas like hospitals or police or any other institution within uh, late capitalism that is required to show numbers up front rather than like as results based rather than like actual value that's being placed forward. And so he's seeing this disconnect within the Soviet Union, albeit on a more massive project scale being similar to the way that late capitalism has developed and duking the stats to quote some show about police yeah so basically uh dying building a canal is similar to duking the stats or doing exams and i find this very interesting i find it uh interesting he's using this he then makes I think this is one of the more interesting paragraphs. It would be a mistake to regard this market Stalinism as some deviation from the true spirit of capitalism. On the contrary, it would be better to say that an essential dimension of Stalinism was inhibited by its association with a social project like socialism and can only emerge in a late capitalist culture in which images acquire an autonomous force. The way value is generated on the stock exchange depends, of course, less on what a company really does and more on perception of and beliefs about its future performance. In capitalism, that is to say, all that is solid melts into PR and late capitalism is defined at least as much by this ubiquitous tendency towards PR production as it is by the imposition of market mechanisms. Structurally, he then gets into Zizek's The Big Other, but I almost feel like the paragraph that follows that kind of belongs here mm -hmm. because he sort of is playing now. He's using this detour into like Stalinism and stuff to play on this idea of really existing capitalism in the same way that like actually existing socialism or really existing socialism's a term of like oh well you can't be idealist about how socialism's supposed to work this is how 
it gets implemented and these supposed problems are inherent to socialism. And he is fighting against this notion that these are problems that neoliberalism is seeking to solve by saying that these are, in fact, problems inherent to neoliberalism that neoliberalism must create. He does a similar move in a previous chapter when he talks about the way in which the people that fund political parties are more like Lenin's vanguard, vanguardism uh -huh. than, than Lenin's vanguard. Yeah, like um, the think tanks. The think tanks are more, more Leninist than Lenin himself. And here he's saying that the bureaucracy within uh, late capitalism is more Stalinist than Stalin. Right, or at the very least... Uh, Atomizing Stalinist kind of... At the very least to the extent that um, you can say like, oh, well, a centralized economy must be bureaucratic and non-responsive. Well, so too of this decent of neoliberalism that promises the He goes into Zizek's big other. Big other is, I suppose in many ways, uh, kind of like the emperor has no clothes story. It's the idea that there's this entity of agreed upon fiction that we basically offload our rationality onto. And so long as we can live in a world where some hypothetical thing is true, we can act as if this is true. How would you describe it? Well, he uses two examples to describe it. Yeah, towards the end of the chapter. One of them, though, here that he uses is Khrushchev's speech about right. Stalin and how he admitted the failings of the Soviet state. And in the next page, he talks about Gerald Ratner, the the jeweler who, you know, does the whole tell it like it is thing where he tells you that his uh, jewelry is crap and then the stocks plummet as a result of that. Uh, it was the biggest speech that I'd ever done at the time to do the Institute of Directors at the Albert Hall. Thousands of people, I think about four or five thousand people. Um, there was the president of South Africa, president the clerk. Nice sherry decanter, it's cut glass and it comes complete with six glasses on a silver-plated tray that your butler could uh, bring you in and serve you drinks on. And it's really only cost £4.95. pence. People say to me, how can you sell this for such a low price? I say because it's total crap. Right, so it's essentially the idea that there's a paradoxical sense in which a certain truth is spoken this truth doesn't actually deliver new information, but it has an effect as if it might. So, for example, after Stalin died, people were aware that there were excesses of Stalin's regime, that uh, there was a bit of over-paranoia, that there was a bit of a cult of personality, that some things weren't really as the propaganda said, but... No one acted as if that was the case, even though they knew it to be true and they knew that everyone else also probably was aware of that, because how could you not be? But then Khrushchev gave his secret speech to all the ministers, and then, like, changes got put in place as a result of that. He didn't tell them anything they didn't know, but, you know, it was the same. The example that I always give about this 
that I always relate to personally is during, I think it was the first debate with Donald Trump in 2016. It was the Republican primary and he was standing there with Bush and Cruz and all the other um, Republicans and they were talking about the Iraq war and the George W. Bush legacy and Donald Trump said to the whole room full of Republicans, the Iraq war was a failure. It was a bad war to begin with. I always knew that it was a bad war. And then like Jeb Bush was like, oh my God, I can't believe that that happened. And uh, to me, it's a similar thing where everybody in the room knew that the Iraq war was a failure. They knew that the push was a failure, that it, it didn't actually bring the intended effects, but that everybody was acting like that the Iraq war was a big success and a huge part of the legacy of the George W. Bush for upholding American exceptionalism and that Donald Trump did this like, I'm telling it like it is and I'm speaking past the big other or speaking against the conventional knowledge of the big other. Because where does the big other come from? It comes from this like, ephemeral knowledge that we have that we right. that we all accept that is ingrained into us even if we know it's not true right right it's this idea of like we agree to go along with this fiction so long as we can convince ourselves that some big other that some entity might be ignorant of the truth but once it's spoiled for them, once Donald Trump says the Iraq war was a failure, once someone on the presidential stage for the Republican Party says that, suddenly this thing that everyone in the Republican Party knew to be true is now common knowledge in the Republican Party. And, you know, it's sort of the comedian his conceit of saying what you're thinking the act of saying it, by definition, you're not telling anyone anything they don't know because they're thinking it. Uh, but the act of saying it out loud suddenly gives it a power to manifest. So the other example, it's, you know, towards the end, is this jewelry company. They made basically fucking mall jewelry, working class jewelry. It was like a joke in England that, like, what was the name of the fucking thing? Uh, Ratner's. Ratner's, yeah. So it was a joke in England, like, oh, um, you know, my husband bought me some earrings. Oh, not from Ratner's. Oh, no, nothing that bad. Like, it was, like things like that. Like, but, like, people bought it and wore it because it was, like, affordable jewelry that the working class person can afford. Anyway, so the CEO of Ratner's, like, is giving some little dinner speech at a little thing. He's like, yeah, well, we make cheap jewelry for poor people. Which is literally their business model. And knows it and like we're actively joking about it. And then the next day the stock. And like likewise it's like. Well I mean obviously they made cheap jewelry. If they were making expensive jewelry for rich people. No rich person would buy that jewelry. Because it looks like shitty jewelry. <laughs> yeah it also reminds me of Elon Musk and Tesla making good cars. When there's like a number of different examples of them blowing up or being shoddily made. Um, yeah, Elon Musk would have had to make other shit at some point in time. Well, yeah, and that's, I think, what he's getting to 
that we can relate to here is that these are speculative markets, right? There, right. There's a speculation on Elon Musk that there's going to be a future in which Tesla and electric vehicles that are powered by these batteries are going to revolutionize the Fordist model of cars. To go back to the automaking, like it's supposed to upend the automaking industry. That doesn't mean that the cars themselves are good. That means that the there's supposed to be a, a, a new generation that'll revolutionize the production of it, right? So you, you're speculating on that rather than the actual quality of the car. Yeah. I think also in Elon Musk's case, the big other was just kind of a annoying lib who like just needed to realize Elon Musk kind of sucked. <laughs> like <laughs> then it was okay to say, oh yeah, this guy's also fucking stupid. Because yeah, liberals used to like him. But then they like realize like, oh, uh, it sort of just likes Trump and shit. <laughs> uh, it's almost like the emperor has no clothes, but like there was never the fiction that like some tailor made his clothes for magical thread. He just came out naked one day and everyone's just like, well, I'm not going to point it out if no one else does. Um, like, yeah, the, uh, the, the big other is similar to the superego for Freud. Right. Like superego is what you think everybody else thinks about you or what you think everybody else is supposed to, the way that you're supposed to to act mm -hmm. uh whereas the big other is the assumed knowledge that everyone has that you know is not necessarily the truth but we all have to maintain that you know it's it's been compared and contrasted to right. so let's so. take a let's take a couple computers and all three are moving in the same direction that is away from a top-down structure of a central command system giving the system instructions about how to behave towards a system that is parallel, that is flat, which is a web, and which change moves from the bottom up. And this is going to happen Alright, now we're talking about Mark Fisher's old teacher and uh, his own local race, you know, our own That's local that. reactionary, the the anti-Soviet. Uh, yeah, so this is what we were saying before about yes, how um, he's driving this point of actually existing capitalism home in the same way we talk about actually existing socialism. So in Nick Land's little blurb we just played there he's talking about this idea of capitalism as a movement towards capitalism decentralization and chaotic horizontal new forms etc and the disillusion of go into the ai of the cybernetic whatever the fuck and so Nick Land has this idea that <laughs> so capitalism is shedding these external shedding shackles that is holding back its accelerating and decentralizing, deterritorializing, to use Nick Land language, form 
And Mark Fisher is saying or no, actually contained within no, capitalism actually. is a decelerating force that actually stagnates. And this that whole discussion of bureaucracy, this whole idea of re-territorializing bureaucracy as a political fight against capitalist realism really comes down to this argument that actually capitalism is not acceleration, it's decelerating. It is, in fact, stagnant. It is destroying the future. It isn't bringing about the future. It's, it's canceling the future. Slowly, it's not even quickly canceled. Um, it can't do anything quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, it can't do anything. To use a phrase from last season, the slow cancellation of the future is what happens when right. capitalism and, and, and to those right. Nick Lands or those even the libertarians who say, who say, I believe they're called. Oh, this isn't you know the correct kind of capitalism or. Capitalism's being held back. Well, capitalism you are just talking back. about your capitalism on paper. You are not talking about capitalism as it actually exists. You're talking about your imagined this capitalism. And I think that's kind of as an example, and that's when he gets into the Ratner example, and you know, as an example Ratner of this inherent irrationality as an capital that just keeps creeping in and creeping in. You know, I got a also like vague Mark Hughes vibes of just this idea like of like his idea of like functional rationality and all that shit where it's like or Mark Fisher in this chapter Ooh, Nick like Lanz this general idea Fisher. of like actually the net sum of rational decisions actually, often irrational and like this general notion of like yeah. no it's not that capitalism is like no, it's not simply uh not being implemented correctly and that's why you have bureaucracy bureaucracy comes bureaucracy yeah and it's funny you mentioned Marcuse or Marcusa he does mention that in his ideas for what comes next which is in acid communism mentions Marcuse as kind of the spirit that should be evoked in order to imagine a world after capitalism. And that it should come from this sort of denaturalizing of bureaucracy, and it should come from this kind of creative, I guess, these creative wellsprings that are repressed by capitalism and that are only like developed and understood under the things like LSD and under the things that force you right. to approach the real right. and approach the like spiritual aspects of capitalism that are frequently uh, repressed and sidelined that could lead in the future post-capitalism. So I think that that kind of is built in this, although he hasn't developed it in this chapter. Uh, I think... It's interesting how he plays with land and then Zizek as this using the symbolic. And if you want to talk about what the symbolic or empire of signs versus the symbolic and how that works in a Lacanian way versus the Landian way of on one hand, you have this symbolic re-territorialization in the Landian way versus the... Zizekian, Lacanian, 
desire drives, the desire to, as he says, the desires that are really generating capitalism rather than... Yeah, he has this Zizek idea of the, like, the idea of the sign having, like, force and, like, this idea of, like, you know, if a judge is speaking to you, not only are you taking that speech as the speech of the law because he's wearing judge clothes, but also it's stupid to be cynical about this. It's dumb to say, like, oh, well, actually, he's no different than me. He is, in fact, different than you, judge. Yeah. Like, so, you know, and that, that whole notion and... Gets into Baudrillard's shit about okay, early can, reality TV. I can talk about yeah, Baudrillard. Yeah, Baudrillard is one of my that, favorites. And I think that him, he does land and then he jumps to Zizek and then he jumps to Baudrillard. And here we have land symbolic. Then we have Zizek symbolic, Zizek Lacan's symbolic. And then we have Baudrillard trying to rationalize the abolition of the symbolic and getting to the real of capitalism, which for Baudrillard could be found in polling and reality TV. Like reality TV for uh, Baudrillard was like an obsession for him. And Mark Fisher points out that- He had like three shows to work with. (laughs) Well, yeah, in the 70s, but then it, you know, in the 80s and as it got into the 2000s, he was more and more fixated on this, this idea that you can control massive amounts of people using media and tricking them into thinking that what they're watching is real. And that has this reflexive quality of if that's what's defined as real, then what I'm experiencing watching it is unreal and so, you know, you're a fly on the wall watching. And I get, and I feel like this also can be applied to like true crime. Like you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of a fly on the wall watching the drama of what is true, right? Right. And, or the fly on the wall documentary. Right. Um, and that here he says that Big Brother TV kind of fuses these two things. The other aspect being polling, and for here we have the real, the real of politics, the real of the so polling market. for Baudrillard is what just like this is a interpreted as the consensus. Yes, yeah, it has a reflexive kind of this is really real, and you right. see this if you watch because the poll says if you watch any like CNN, political news. Or or even to get back to what we were saying earlier of this whole teaching to the test thing, I mean, this is as old a critique of politicians as any is, oh, they just go by the polls. And there's a certain market Stalinism to polling. Right, sure. And in the way that you hear people... It's the report back to the central office. Politicians, they look at polling before they do stuff and how it'll affect Mm -hmm. them. And that is the opposite of what should be going on, right? In the traditional sense is that... Yeah, I mean, the problem isn't so much like whether the politician... Because you could argue like responding to polling is simply being reactive to public opinion. And why shouldn't we want our elected officials to do that? 
But the problem is that they're not doing that. What they're doing is a commodity production of good poll numbers right. that is alienated and removed from delivering results to consumers. Exactly. And that's what Bulgeriard is so fascinated or repulsed by is this kind of reality that's shaped by these big the others. Of the these big others that are telling you 75% of people want to have healthcare passed. That doesn't mean that healthcare is being passed, but when people go on and say with authority, most Americans want healthcare being passed, what they're really doing is they're looking to that polling, which acts as a big other that says, according to my data, my data-driven analysis. Right. And here he's saying that in Big Brother, you have this fusing of the two, where you or American Idol or, or American Idol or wh wherever yeah. you vote on who's the best and the audience participation creates this uh, immediate snap polling, which is supposed to be the sum of all the the world who's the show is responding to. Right. Sure. And so in here you have this circuit of communication that he mentioned Bulgeriard in an earlier chapter with, I think, the axiom with Wally and how there's a circuit of communication that develops in the axiom where there's nothing that's made. There's just communication between the people. People are constantly circulating text and language and that that kind of acts in the same way that this polling acts, right? That you have a communication from everyone that presses one or two on their phone to vote for the first or second singer in American Idol to determine the winner and that that vote should be reflected right back at you as the big other that's giving the polling data. And so... Who should be knocked out of Big Brother? Who should be sent off the island in Survivor? You have this kind of circuit of, of communication that develops as a result of this market Stalinism. This market right. Stalinism that is telling you, well, that is determining your actions. Because the polling is determining your actions. You're not determining the polling, even if you are, in effect, juking the stats, right? Right, right. So you juke the stats... You juke the polling to make it look more favorable for you, therefore justifying your behavior, right? Mm -hmm. So there is this kind of determinacy that goes on in late capitalism, which I think Mark Fisher, in tracing this from Land to Zizek to Bolgerard, really does it in a very beautiful way, even if it's extremely dense and um, a real indictment. And when I read this the first time, I was like, wow, this is a real indictment and a real good explanation for why I don't personally care about the thing that's going on on the TV. But a lot of other people appear to because a lot of other people are seeming to respond to it. Yeah. And um, I mean, like you said, the polling kind of shapes reality in a lot of ways that, you know, your purview for what's realistic in politics is polling or not or yeah and then he discusses the whole i mean kind of what we said earlier about the whole education ofsted um like how they have these self-assessments and 
whatnot. We kind of went over that. He the mentions the, the auditing process for teachers and such. Mentions Kafka for fairly obvious reasons. <laughs> mentions Foucault for fairly obvious reasons. <laughs> well, um, we mentioned Foucault earlier. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, just the. I mean, it kind of is like a moving away from Foucault in many ways, where, you know, like, like you were saying, like, the idea under Foucault is the school is essentially a worker factory. Factory that produces people who have the skills, and therefore the, you know, the factory is the consumer from the schools. And um, nowadays, under, like, neoliberalism and late capitalism, it's sort of this more indeterminate space where in many ways the student is the customer and in many ways, you know, I mean, the original notion of the control society that we've been talking about this whole time has been the sort of advancement or response to uh, discipline. So, yeah. The other thing that I liked to kind of put a pin on the market Stalinism is he compares postmodern. It's one of it's one of the most absurd things to do is to do a self assessment. When you do a self assessment and they ask you what's or even in an interview when you're asked yeah. what's your biggest weakness or what do you feel like is the thing that you're the least adept at working on or what can you improve on the most. He, he compares that to a, a version of Maoist confessionalism yeah. in which workers are required to engage in constant symbolic self-denigration. You know, and I, I think this really goes back to the beginning with the office space versus blue collar, where at one point you had this authoritarian walking along the line Mm -hmm. Right. And telling you what to do. And now as a response to that and as sort of a rational response to that, you have people not walking along the line, but you have people telling, you know, passive authoritarianism, which is if you don't do this, then there will be consequences indefinitely down the line. You won't get that raise. You won't get that promotion. You'll possibly be fired. And this passive authority is a major shift that we've had in yeah, the Yeah, or even more years. than that, like, you should want to do this. This is, like, a part of your growth. This is a part of, like, you yourself are motivating you to do this. Your self-expression. Mm -hmm. It's not me. It's not me that's telling you to put on 37 pieces of flair. However, you should be... You should want to do this. You should want to put on more flair in order to show your fealty to our company, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you to do that. Well, not to show feel in order to express yourself, which is what our company wants. Right. Then don't you want to express yourself too? Yep. So next chapter, talking about dreams and the lathe of heaven. And so tune in to chapter seven, where we'll go Ursula into- Green. Um, check it out. Ass niggas don't sleep. And all I gotta say to you, wanna be, gonna be cocksucker pussy pranksters, is when the fire dies down, what the fuck you gonna do? Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. <laughs>